of knowing. All right, man. Welcome to Crow Triple Seven Radio. This is episode 276. Jason Lindgren is back with me, and we have a recurring guest that was last about a year ago, sometime around the solstice, um, probably just prior to Christmas. It was episode 191.5, Simon Steeps. We were expecting it was going to be a sleeper episode because we wanted to cover edible weeds, among other things, that ended up being incredibly popular. But this time around, we're going to go at permaculture forest gardening, things like this. We'll cover mycelium and a bunch of interesting things that people should know, particularly on the tale of, and Jason and I were just talking about this, consider the color episodes that we've done and consider the cymatics. So last time around, we talked a little bit about dandelions. That's yellow. So we can make an assumption about the color. Yellow is mined, but think of how many petals is on the head of a dandelion. So that must translate into an extremely high vibratory rate, right? If you took cymatics and you had a four-lobed geometry, that would be a very low frequency making that to get up to whatever that is, 50 or 100 little petals, however many are on the top of a dandelion, you'd have to really jack up the frequency. But these are things to consider as we go through this. Welcome, Jason. And a brisk good morning to you. Hold down in Louisiana, huh? We're getting a storm through, so I got my fingers crossed for internet. Yeah, we had some rain, and it brought with it some cold weather, and man, take that back, will you? I don't need that here. Uh, Blix loves it, man. He goes out and digs in the mud and makes my life uh, difficult. All right, if we don't have anything, actually, we're, we're way in front. We're at least three, four episodes in front, so I guess we'll just jump in, right? Yep. All right, welcome, Simon. Great. Thanks for having me back, guys. Uh, yeah. I'm really happy to talk about this stuff, and I'm glad people received that last episode so well. Welcome back. And I'll say to the listeners, Jason's going to edit what he can. There's a little bit of crackly crisp on Simon's mic. Uh, We tried to work it out. Jason will do what he can in the edit, uh, but you'll have to bear with us. To reiterate, the previous episode that Simon Steeps came on was 191.5, I don't know, roughly a year ago. But Simon, where would you like to jump in? Um, Do you want to go through some of the notes you provided verbatim, or do you want to start somewhere else? Well, let's just start uh, with the general idea of permaculture. I can just sort of outline that, and then we can get into the different sort of specifics. Okay. So permaculture is basically a design science based on ethics. And so there's care for people, care for the earth, and care for the future generations are kind of the three basic principles of permaculture. And so everything you do has to be based on those fundamental ethics. So right off the bat, you're on to something, right? But then you can sort of sum it up into alternatives for building a more symbiotic relationship with nature so that we provide all of our needs and don't have to work as hard to get them, essentially, right? So nature's out here doing all these things that nature does and nobody's interfering and she produces all these great things like we discussed in the last episode. Now, permaculture comes in and says, okay, here's where humans are going to live. Now let's look at what nature's doing and let's now design that little area around where we're going to live to really sing. So we're going to, the idea in uh, alchemy again, where you exalt it, right? So we're exalting in an area around where we want to live, if you will, to really provide the needs that we require, be they food, medicine, water, shelter, community, power management, sewer treatment, all of these things that we need, we can design in a local sense that work with nature to be of benefit to, again, the future generations, ourselves, 
and the world around us. So it's a bit almost like alchemy here, where we're going to do what we're going to call science. It's going to be the science of plants and planting, uh, but we're going to have a care for nature, and we're going to try to create and make things within the scope of what nature allows. And so this definition you laid down runs us in great to the next bullet point, which is symbiotic relationships. Now, there's a couple things I'd tee you up, I guess. In all the research I've done about people way back in the day, uh, Lord knows how long ago, hundreds of years probably, realizing that, hey, I want to turn this rosemary into a tincture. But this old dude 300 years ago told me that if I plant this plant next to the rosemary, the rosemary is all the more potent for it. And so there's an example of a symbiotic relationship. But I notice in your notes, you actually refer to the relationship between the living things in nature as a guild. Yes. Uh, So that's a term in forest gardening that basically denotes a grouping of plants that maybe were specifically chosen to grow there. In the forest gardening sense, we often choose the plants that we want, but there's a balance as well in what I like to do where you allow a lot of things to come in as well, right? So there's this balance, but uh, that's the idea. So they're growing together to help each other, right? So say you have an apple tree. So this comes into that keynote, uh, like in your color episode there is really cool. Everything sort of resonates around this one particular thing, right? So that element in the guild is your central focus, which most likely in my areas anyway, are uh, fruit or nut trees, right? So you'd say an apple tree is a classic one. So you're planting your apple tree, but now instead of just sticking it in the grass, which uh, really uses a lot of nitrogen, which is the main sort of growing element for plants and a lot of water and has the same root area, takes up the same spot in the soil as an apple tree. So the apple tree won't grow so well because it's competing with the grass, right? Now we're going to take out that grass and we're going to plant a whole bunch of things in there that actually benefit the apple tree so that it grows faster. So we're going to choose things that are nutrient accumulators. So they have really deep tap roots on them. They form symbiotic relationships, even on a smaller scale now with uh, specific bacteria that live on their root nodules and they exchange atmospheric nitrogen, which is normally not available to plants for starches or sugars from these plants, right? So now these plants are making the soil more rich for the apple tree to grow in, right? So automatically you're you're ahead and the root systems don't compete where the apple tree has like the spreading roots that are all nice in the topsoil and it gets all that water and nutrition there. These nutrient accumulating plants often have very deep tap roots. And so they're drilling deep straight down into the subsoil where the minerals and such are and bringing those up to the surface layer into their greenery parts, which die back every year, right? As winter comes, these plants deposit that uh, nutrition onto the soil around the tree, thus building more organic matter, uh, which you see on the forest floor all the time and is why a forest grows on its own essentially, right? So Then you're looking at other things. So now how about uh, insect attracting plants that have really nice, beautiful flowers and smell good that attract your bees so that your tree gets pollinated even better, right? And it just keeps on going. And so when you're creating these guilds, there's all these different layers in a forest too, right? When you think of a regular garden, you're just out there and you got one dimension and you're planting it in rows and they're all in full sun and it's just nothing really natural about it, essentially, right? Where 
forest gardening has three dimensions, right? So we can grow in a vertical space as well as so up and down in the ground, right? So the roots, the root crops, right? And so now you can take up so much more room. So you have overstory, big, tall, epic nut type trees, and then your smaller apple trees. And then under there, you get your shrubs, right? Raspberries and so on. And then you have your herbaceous plants like lavender, say, or something like that, right? Because that's attracting the bees. And then you're in your little ground covers, your strawberries and things. And then you grow vines in there. And all of a sudden, you have like a ridiculous amount of stuff all basically in this little climate microclimate that you've created that's all benefiting this fruit tree to grow better but it's also producing all these other amazing things that you can't even really begin to fathom until you do it and then observe nature and see what happens right because there's huge opportunity for life that you've now created that uh, will just sort of explode as you manage it here and there and keep on observing it right well, it brings to mind the episode we did with Clive DeCarl, where he was talking about fulvic acid and the way he described the best you could do to try to relate it in people's minds to nature, which is where all the stuff is supposed to come from in our minds, as uh, if you went into a pristine forest, went into the middle, went under some big honking tree somewhere, grabbed all the leaf litter and the mud or the dirt, made it into mud and then drank it. There's your best fulvic minerals you could do. But Yep. To bring it forward into the guild idea, I recently saw a thing from Japan, which is so far from the way we think. When we when we want to grow vegetables or something here, we always have like these pristine rows. Every weed is pulled, and it's just radishes or just carrots. Occasionally, they might pair one or two. Like here where I live, they occasionally pair three things together, corn, beans, and squash, or I forget exactly what it is, but it's based on what the Indians had left. Uh, to teach them. But in this place in Japan, it was these remote villages in Japan, and they were going out to what just looked like a bunch of weeds in a field, moving the weeds aside, and there was vegetables. They weren't even weeding. And they were saying that the symbiosis makes what they're harvesting all the better for it. And I thought, wow, that's a million miles in thinking away from the way we do it here. Yeah, that's good stuff. So Masanobu Fukuoka is uh really a neat Japanese guy who sort of pioneered that idea possibly or brought it back or whatever you say, I guess. But uh, he was one of the sort of forefathers in this kind of a movement. And yeah, he was growing rice with other stuff in it, right? So he was doing his clovers and things like to uh, help his nitrogen. And, you know, he went from there. And of course, they're taking it even further now, which is totally awesome, right? But there is that whole idea, like there's way more life force present, right? And when you're growing things in this in this way, um, we're just learning so much from nature. We don't really know very much. We think we do, but not everything likes it on the hot, sunny, flat ground. And there's a lot more life force that you're able to harvest from these plants because we're talking a lot of perennial stuff, right? So these plants are there year after year and their roots are really building that relationship and you mentioned the mycelium, we'll get into it more, but this is when you start to build those mycelial networks of the underground uh, connection between mushrooms, right? Mushrooms are the fruiting body, but uh, when you don't disturb that soil, um, so when you create that forest environment, uh, that's when it builds, because if you're tilling your soil every year, you're destroying that mycelial network. And so it never has that chance to really build those uh, communication structures between the different plants, right? And not only are they communicating in a sense of 
there's evidence showing like that you get a bunch of trees and at one end they get hit by some disease and then all of a sudden they make their antibodies, if you will. But then the trees down the line, they don't get the same thing, right? Because they've already created this stuff because they were told, warned in advance by these other, the mycelium in the other trees possibly, right? And so it's some really neato stuff going on with that. And we always like to talk about the life force, right? So I think there's really something to be said about how much more you get when growing plants together that really uh, go in symbiosis, right? Before we came on the air, I was making the the joke of Avatar, the movie with the giant blue beings poking us in the eye because the scientists go out and say, oh my God, this whole forest, look, I poke this with a needle and the whole forest is connected. Everything's connected. And they're kind of poking us in the eye as if you would have to go to some foreign planet somewhere where giant blue things live to find such a thing. And I think you make a really important point here because we do till and we do, for the most part, have like these pristine rows when we grow things. Even when you get into grapes and trees like where I am, there's a lot of farming. It's really that one plant and it's like sterile and it gets carved up a lot, that ground. So the importance, if there is networks, that gets disturbed every year. And I think the the further forward we get, we kind of realize we have not been doing it the best way we could for a long time. And that that sets aside the idea of the diversity that has been thrown aside by the way we currently grow things. Yeah, this is all about diversity in, in, a, in a lot of a sense. Like in the whole permaculture uh, science, if you will, it's this overarching design way of thinking, right? And it's an umbrella that encompasses many things. So forest gardening is one element of this permaculture design where you're creating a forest environment that you've intentionally designed with, of course, the help of nature all the time. But then you can also encompass other things under this umbrella, like market gardening, right? Where we are still growing these classic vegetables that we all like to eat at the grocery store, lettuce and kale and beets and whatever, right? But then it's about designing those systems so that they work even better as well. So doing no-till or low-till systems, high in mulch and setting up these garden beds so that they capture rainwater and we need to use way less irrigation and all of these different things, right? So there are all these different elements, uh, different ways of growing food under the permaculture umbrella, as well as designing everything else, right? Be your home and the whole landscape upon which you live. So there's a whole community design. Any, anyway, basically, you can design anything with the idea of permaculture in mind and applying the certain principles and ethics to your design. And it's a lot about spending the time to create the design and know what you want to do before you go in and put in the effort. A lot of things we see these days, they just kind of get the job done, if you will, right? And get out there and do something and put the put the work in. But there's not a whole lot of thought put into what's happening here already on this land and how can I put my efforts forth such that it's uh, most benefit for me and the earth to use what is already here. Like if the, if the hill is sloping and the water runs downhill, well, let's see what, how we can use that water and direct it to where we want to go in a passive way that is beneficial for everything rather than just putting in a ditch and draining it off my land as fast as possible because I don't want this wet spot here sort of a thing, right? That guy hasn't thought about this vital source of water and now he's going to go and pump out the aquifer to irrigate everything sort of, right? 
Right. I, I think I think the first time that I became aware that we're probably not doing things as well as we could was almost 30 years ago. I love blueberries, so that's one benefit of living in Rhode Island. Every year, there's huge crops of locally grown blueberries, and I love them. But 30 years ago, my wife, I, my father were still alive. We went kayaking on the Charles River, and we got to this one part of the Charles River where one side was just a complete wall of blueberries right on the river like actually hanging over. We were in our kayaks. We could pick them. And I realized I'd never tasted a blueberry in my life. At first I saw them, they were tiny, a fraction of the size of the ones that you see grown. And there are different varieties, but I thought, oh, these are, you know, there's not going to be much to these, but oh my word, they were the best blueberries ever. I've never eaten anything since that even comes close. And I started thinking, what's different about this? And there they were, perfectly shaded, probably their roots in the river, hanging over the river. And as we went, some of the locals were just out and you could see them collecting blueberries for blueberry pancakes. Um, but that's really what got me thinking about it because I can't even describe. It's like eating something that's just okay and eating something that is outstanding um, and I remember going up, seeing the size, they were tiny. I thought there'd be nothing to them, but the opposite was true. It was like, I'd never eaten a blueberry in my life. Now, what do you think is going on there, Simon, that the fruit is just so much better in that particular environment? And how could we capture that in a farming situation? Because obviously the, the giant factory farming ideas, they just don't seem to yield the results. Yeah, absolutely. So again, there's that whole symbiotic relationship. So these blueberries are growing and their roots are touching a whole bunch of other things. And one of the main things going with that is the watering regimen. So these blueberries are used to the natural rhythms of the rain cycle, right? And so they get water as they need it, hopefully, in certain years, different things. But that perfect amount of water makes them that sweetness. And so there's that as well as the wildness of it, which is that resilience factor. But then you go to like a big farm and these guys just, it's all about weight, right? So they just pump these things full of water and that water often has the fertilizer, right? Uh, artificial fertilizers in it. So they just make these things really big and they pick the designs so that they're the highest yielding, right? They're always changing up, selecting for what they want. And so you end up with this just big bowl of water, essentially, that looks kind of like a blueberry. And when you're out in nature, it's, again, the totally opposite. It just has that little bit of rain and the just perfect amount of what it needs, especially if it's on the river type of thing, right? So, so I think we've identified another issue with corporation, right? Uh, what corporation values, and the only thing they're interested in, is volume and bottom line. At no point during the production is, I would imagine, the nutritional value and the quality, per se, as based on nutrition, because let's face it, you can say a lot of things about quality, but isn't really nutritional value the only thing that matters? Well, taste, because people won't eat it. So probably has to be palatable, but beyond palatable, it's nutrition value. And so we've gotten to a system that is wholly abrogated from the things that actually matter. I mean, what if a corporation could somehow be, I don't even know, shuffled around so that the nutritional value of what they were producing mattered? To the bottom line, or I don't even know how you could do that. My point is, it's not just these sterile rows and the way that we've come up with science and fertilizers and all these things, which are kind of against our health and the health of the plant too, if you want to be honest about it. But the nutrition is absolutely non-existent for the most part in the minds of the people creating the products or 
should I say, the, the vegetables and fruits. Well, yeah, absolutely. Right. So that's what this is all about here is creating maximum nutrition. So that's one of the ultimate things with this too. Like the food growing aspect of permaculture is always the like really sexy part of it, if you will. Right. Like that's what, when you say permaculture, that's sort of the first thing people think about is growing food because I mean, we're so intimately connected to food and it's, and when you grow it, it's, you're using plants and it's all beautiful and all these things. Right. So creating that nutrition like so we could feed so many more people on the planet there's this whole idea of we need to do these big farms to feed so many people but that's all like you say nutrient dead food right you could grow as many acres of corn as you want but you're not going to thrive and you're not going to live off of it where this stuff you could grow on such a smaller footprint if you will like so cities is a great example right so many people are living in the city and this stuff works so well in the city like little backyards and any little green space like the amount of food and medicine that you can produce on these like small areas in the urban landscape is astronomical like some of the examples out there it just boggles your mind to think about how much stuff they're pulling off of these little plots when they use intelligent design and work with nature and are out there putting in their due diligence right so it's really really uh something to see and i mean the city really needs it right instead of shipping stuff from all over here we are we can make some uh, amazing strides growing food in the cities is one thing when i was coming up half of my family was in the michigan area and my grandparents uh, always and the whole time that i knew them always had a garden and in the yards that were big enough they'd have a tree a lot of apples and things like that in michigan i think there might have been a cherry tree at one point um, but the way it worked was every, in that older way that we used to live, every neighborhood where there was enough room in the yard, there was at least a food-bearing tree, if not a small garden. And what would happen is when the apples came ready, there'd be so many, they just trade. So that person yeah. had pears or that person had something else. Can you imagine if in the cities now, or if you have any kind of a yard and you could choose one tree and you're in California, you say, okay, I'm going to do an avocado. Um, someone else, a lemon, someone, you know, and, and then you can trade all these things because the truth is, and, and Owen, when we had Owen on, I asked him point blank because there's whole groups of people around Owen now going back to the land, cultivating, growing, uh, trying to be more self-sufficient. And I said, Owen, how many families could you feed on a single acre? And he reckoned it would easily be 10. And so when you realize it's, it's, I think in our minds, with the modern way we live and we've kind of gotten so lazy, we think it's too hard to do these things, but really it does not take much land to produce a lot. Think of the amount of fruit that will come off one orange tree in the fruiting season. It's pretty much more than any one family could ever consume. Yeah. Uh, that was really great stuff with Owen on there. Like he's doing some really good stuff and hats off to him, right? That whole building community and is just so important. And I mean, so permaculture is really about community too, right? Like, I mean, you got to live with people and humans are communal and to have that strong body around you is, is so important. So yeah, that was really great. Talking about local currencies and these things, I'm fortunate enough to live in an area where we have a local exchange and trading system and we have our own local currency so we sign up and we meet a few times a year and have these little market days we send each other emails and it's like hey i got too many blueberries who wants them i'm gonna sell you them we sell it for a deal 
and we're going to use this local currency that we have and different guys keep track of the currency and you got your account and it goes up and down and you trade whatever you can be it skills be it food different people raise eggs guys raise lambs like there's a whole bunch of stuff all just within 15 20 minute drive sort of from where i am i can go and get all these different things from people who i know and i trust and are doing good and using a currency that has nothing to do with uh, the big brother if you will right here where I am in Rhode Island, one of the things you see a lot, like they put all that, I'm kind of in a farming area. It used to be just fishermen and farmers here before it started to get gentrified, which is happening now. But there's still a lot of growing going on everywhere. And the squash plant underscores what we're doing here because you'll drive by people's houses and they'll have like a little fruit stand out with a money jar. It says grab a squash for a buck or grab a tub of blueberries for two or three bucks. And I'm not kidding, it's everywhere, but the squash is a good example because a single squash plant typically produces more squash than one family can consume. But the longer into the season, the fruiting season it gets, the bigger those squashes get. So as you're driving through the neighborhood, you'll see this three-foot squash that someone wants two bucks for. I mean, you could eat a week on a squash that size, but it, it just underscores what we could be doing. Yeah. Absolutely. I just want to bring it back here. It's a really good couple examples here of some really inspiring permaculture guys to go and check out. Like uh, Jeff Lawton, he's sort of taken over the the head of the Permaculture Institute out of Australia, sort of where this whole science developed, if you will, as a recognized science. And one of my favorite things about what he does is he does a lot of this aid work. So he goes to these really extreme countries. And so he's over in Jordan in the Dead Sea Valley, where like you're talking total desert. And he goes out there and working his magic, he grows a jungle, basically. Right. And so in a few years, all of a sudden they're producing all of these figs and all of these things. And nobody thought you could grow anything there because the ground was salt salinated from over irrigation and the ground was ruined. And. Sure enough, he goes in there and sets it up and they're growing this jungle essentially, right? So you can go on the YouTube there and you can check out Greening the Desert and check them out. Like he's literally turning the desert back into a jungle that feeds the local communities, right? And all it takes is a little bit of human effort and some ingenuity and observing nature and uh, you're bringing it all back. So it's really neat to see some of the rehabilitation projects that are out there in the world they just make us think that we're screwed right and but really sure we've done a lot of damage with these big machines and things but to then take those big machines and use them in like a well-designed thought-out way create these beautiful landscapes that harvest water appropriately and direct it where we need it and do all of these things that benefit life right so right now we have these really big flat monsanto fields but if you went out there with that same kind of equipment and started digging ponds and building mounds and directing these little water streams to do all these different things that provide different microclimates for plants to grow. It's just amazing how you can facilitate life. And that's the really a prime time example there out in such an extreme environment at the Dead Sea Valley. So highly recommend going checking out Greening the Desert by Jeff Lawton's real inspirational stuff he's doing over there. And then there's another guy, Sepp Holzer, and he's over in Austria. And uh, so he's an old guy and he didn't know that permaculture was a thing, right? He learned this all just uh, from observing nature. He grew up on the farm and he was in the Alps. So they have this really extreme farm. He has like 
I forget if it's like 2,000 foot elevation difference from the bottom of his farm to the top. So he's like literally on the side of a mountain, right? So his dad gives him the farm when he grows up and his dad retires. And um, as a child, he was there having his own little gardens and observing things and doing stuff. And then he goes to farm school and they teach him all this stuff and he tries it and everything dies, right? Because they're telling him to spray stuff and do this and that. And he has no luck. And so, and he just finally gets upset and says, forget all that. He's going to go back to the stuff that he was doing as a kid, right? And sure enough, he starts observing nature. And now this guy's got this most amazing thing, literally on, perched on the side of the mountain. He's created all this interconnected water elements. So he's like, harvests water at the top by putting all these terraced landscapes in, right? So he comes in with a little excavator and makes these flat spots. So they're like steps down the mountain and he's connected all of these waterways, grows a million things there. And because of his ingenuity in creating these microclimates, which are so awesome, the guy literally is growing citrus in the Alps, right? So this guy's growing so much stuff that you wouldn't even think is possible being like four or 5,000 feet elevation where like you get deep snow and you get straight up winter there. But just the way that he set these things up so that they really got your pond and the sun shines on it and it holds that heat and it reflects it back into the rock wall of the mountain where you sliced your little terrace out of and all these different things, right? It's just, you can't even imagine really the number of connections that get established in such a thing where he's got fish in his ponds and he runs his cattle on these places and these all this just looks so wild. And if you didn't know, you would just think it was just this crazy sea of green, right? But once you start to understand it, it's like, oh man, those are apple trees and this is hazelnuts and he's growing this here and that and all these plants, you start to see it all come together. And it just is absolutely astounding as to what this guy's done there. And then he's gone out and he does all these grand projects around the world, like in Spain, where they're drying up and all the oak trees, I think they are, anyway, they're all dying because of drought, right? And he comes in here to this community and they haven't had water in so long. And he just comes in there and does his thing with his big machinery and just does it just right. And now they have these like 10 acre lakes or something like that, right? He's brought these huge lakes back and just unbelievable. One day this was just barren desert of sand and next day, not the next day, but you get the idea it's full of water again, right? It doesn't take very long. And now you're recharging the groundwater. Now you're bringing all sorts of life back because water is an essential element, right? I mean, nothing grows without water. And so it all really does start with water and to really see the land and how the water and earth interact with each other is a really vital element in this whole design science. Um, really got to fundamentally start with the water because water flows downhill and it's essential to life. So here we are on any given plot of land. Now let's see what's the water going to do and then make our decisions from there, right? How are we going to manage that water and use it and keep it on our land as long as possible and make it as slow and gentle as possible such that we can extract the maximum amount of life from it before it leaves the system, right? So this is a great example like of, of energy in a system. This is a really good way of seeing the permaculture uh, design, I guess. It's like a spider web, if you will, right? It creates all of these different connections between all of these different strands, and you get this really strong web of interconnection, right? And so we want to do that 
same thing on our land such that we capture all of the energy. And so you can imagine solar energy, right? That's what we get. The sun shines down and we get this energy. Now, how can we use that most appropriately on our system? And so we set things up such that the sun shines in and it grows this apple tree, which produces this fruit, which falls on the ground here, which feeds this chicken, which fertilizes the ground, which helps the fruit tree grow better. But then it's also connected to all of these other elements, right? And so it's just really, really quite something. So how do you connect all of these different elements together so that it's a resilient net? And if one of them fails one year, it's not a big deal because you have all of these other things holding it up, right? If one year you don't get apples because of some late frost or something, well, not so bad because my plums and my peaches and my cherries and all my raspberries and things are still doing fine, right? And so you're not putting all your eggs in one basket, as they say, and you can really spread these things out to maximize resilience, right? At the end of the day, resilience is a, is a really big thing in this whole system because everything is uh, so fragile right now, right? One thing can wipe out a whole crop of corn without too much trouble. And um, that's not so good, right? All of a sudden, the grocery stores get empty real quick. But uh, not the case when when doing this with really intentional, good design, because you're producing things all year round that require such different, well, they have such different requirements, I guess. So the chances of them all failing at once, well, if that happens, we're in the end times kind of, right? We've got bigger things to deal with, but um, you can really withstand a lot of extremes, right? Be they drought and or flood um, because of the way that the system was designed we we to really mitigate those extremes and and it's really quite something to see well almost a hundred percent of what i see from things like the news is whenever there's some calamity or so-called calamity oh it's the end of the world all this was destroyed but what we actually see is that it's renewal when a big fire goes through what comes out i've seen it where I was in East County of San Diego, you see some pretty horrific fires. I'm not going to get into the hows or whys. It used to be about every 10 years you might see a bad fire. Now it's every year. But what you see, the renewal behind that fire is astonishing. And it is so, there's much more vivacious than what was burned away in the front of it. But I wanted to mention, I haven't heard of either, either two of the gentlemen or the men that you mentioned. So people who want to look them up. Jeff Lawton is Jeff with a G, G-E-O-F-F, Lawton, L-A-W-T-O-N. Sounds like he's doing the biblical greening of the desert there. And the other guy is Sepp Holzer. First name is S-E-P-P, last name Holzer, H-O-L-Z-E-R. You can look it up. That's the guy that's over by Germany, if I followed. And we were about to go. I was looking ahead where we're going to go here. But you you make a a valid point when um, you're talking about crops failing. And this could be an easy way for the false news cycle to cause some real trouble. You take the potato as an example. Uh, When I was young, there was tons of varieties of potatoes, almost wholly. And there, you know, there's a few others still, but almost wholly it's the Burbank potato that's taken over because everyone likes its shape and size. It can be a French fry. It can be a baked potato. So they concentrate on one kind of potato and everyone's known for decades that if the blight that kills that kind of potato ever rears its head, uh, there's going to be a hell of a crop failure because there's no diversity. 
And this is part of the problem, too. And I think some of the good examples of the diversity loss, clearly, because I've studied this, apples. Go look up where apples are supposedly from. First of all, it's not our part of the world in most of the accounts I read, but there were apparently thousands of varieties of apples. Tomatoes is another one. Actually, chickens, believe it or not, is another one. And what's happened over time is the diversity that we had less than 100 years ago is just decimated at this point. And so a big thing in the South right now that I keep an eye on is people bringing back what they call the heirloom varieties. But there's a problem with that as well, because places like the former Monsanto were buying up all these heirloom seed companies and doing what they do best, which is evil. So this is part, again, of what permaculture would would be concerned with to to avoid these pitfalls. Oh, yeah. Saving seeds is huge, right? I mean, there's so many different things you can do with permaculture, right? Um, as another just little side, like is for income streams, right? There's so many ways that you can make money on this. And, you know, saving seeds and selling heirloom seeds is one of those, not to mention just the whole uh, security of it. I mean, my wife, she's saving all kinds of seeds here this last year because we had such a hard time getting seeds in the spring. All of a sudden, everybody was buying all their seeds, right? So, I mean, she's been doing this for years, kind of, but just as a security type thing for growing your own food for next year, even, right? So there's a lot of benefits to saving seeds. And I mean, when you're setting up a system like this, like there's tons of seeds to be saved. But uh, yeah, you mentioned the chicken there, which is the classic like uh, permaculture animal, if you will. And we just we just got some chickens this year for the first time and we're running them out in the yard here. And it's, man, it's really neat. And you talk about the uh, different kinds of breeds. And so I went and found this really great Canadian heritage breed chicken, which was bred up in Quebec in the early days of Canada kind of thing to be super hardy for cold weather and to be good at foraging, to produce eggs and meat and to be these big, hardy, strong birds, right? So I'm getting this really sort of specific type of breed that I thought was really neat because it covers all of the basis. Like the less effort I have to put in the better, essentially, right? And that's kind of a real principle of permaculture, if you will, is uh, the energy audit. So how much energy do I put into a system versus how much energy do I get out of a system, right? So adding chickens into a system, it's like, okay, so I got to go out there every day and I got to feed them and I got to water them. And so less I have to do all that, the better. And then they produce all of this energy, be it meat, eggs, fertilizer that they produce, the bugs that they eat, they do all of these beneficial things for my property, right? And then that helps the rest of the system grow better. So it's a really great way. Another way of thinking about permaculture in, in my sense is that energy audit you plant an apple tree and it just needs less work and produces more fruit every year versus you go out there and plant an acre of corn, it needs more work and produces less fruit over time, right? So your energy is going down in that sense and the energy is going up all the time in, in the other sense, right? So it's really, uh, that's that's it sort of at a very fundamental level is a great way to think. And every year, it produces more and I need to do less work to keep it alive. So, I mean, that's nature right there, right? So I really enjoy that way of considering when making designs, how much energy do I need to put in versus what am I getting out of it? I mean, calories is a just a way of good measure because it's a unit of energy, right? So you could just even think about how many calories of, do you get from that corn and the energy to go into there. You can't eat like boggles your mind when you start to get into the 
building this tractor and paying for the diesel and all of this fertilizer and what's all entailed to even get this bloody tractor onto the field versus this little forest garden of an acre over here where there's like one family working on it and they don't require any petroleum products to keep the thing going, right? And every year it gets better and better and they need to do less and less because it's more resilient and more established and just kind of takes care of itself almost with just a little bit of human uh, manipulation, if you will, or orchestration. That's what I really like is, uh, is the idea of a symphony. So you get all these all these um, instruments together, right? And if you just threw them all together and just let them have at it, you get a whole bunch of noise sort of, and it'd all be there. And each instrument in and of itself is really cool. But then when you get the conductor in there and he has this piece of music and he conducts the whole thing, it becomes this beautiful sound, this beautiful harmonies and everything working together. And it's this pure beauty. And that's kind of, I like to think about that as well when making the design, right? Here's all of these elements on this land and they're not, they're here, but they're not really working very well together because humans came in here and disturbed this long time ago. And now it's just kind of a big lawn and field from back in the day. So I'm going to come in here, observe nature. I'm going to tweak these things by managing the water flows and planting a whole bunch of perennial things that'll come back. And I'm going to see what I see, and then I'm going to exalt it, and I'm going to turn it into this beautiful symphony and conduct that symphony, if you will, right? So you just really get into some really, really awesome stuff. You know, we kind of look back, and everyone has this mindset that we're so advanced, but we're really kind of not. Like, if you take a bag of fertilizer, most of them have three numbers, and let's see if I can remember. What is it? A nitrogen, phosphate, what's the other one? Potassium. Yeah, potassium, that's it. So they've schematized. No matter what you grow, these three numbers in certain varying amounts are going to cover whatever you're growing. And by the way, this is all chemical. And by the way, none of this is natural anymore. But if you go back to like what we're told the Indians were up to in the area where I am, where everything pretty much has an Indian name, we're told they would grow three plants. Well, how the hell did they know? They sure were not counting nitrogen and, and phosphates. And how did they know? Well, clearly, because they understood nature at some level, they'll take a corn plant. I think the other two, I get this wrong a lot, but I think it's uh, squash and beans. And the reason I think it's beans is because the other one climbs. So basically, you put these three things on a mound and you grow them together. The reason being is because one of the plants is pulling this out of the dirt while the other plant is putting it back in. And so the idea of crop rotation that we do, where we deplete a field, then we got to rotate the crop, and then we got to carve in whatever the the next thing was to try to get back what we depleted before the indians were already doing it and by the way the beans climb so guess what the corn is the thing they're climbing on as you were describing earlier so they were doing what we would currently call permaculture and they had no idea this is what i'm getting at the schematization idea that oh well there's these basic three things that almost every plant needs so if you have 10 percent of this and 5% of that, 90% of this, you can grow this one. And I remember this wholeheartedly because I used to do bamboo. I thought there was so much promise in bamboo as a way to deal with waste and have building materials at the same time. But unfortunately, I was in Southern California. And I came to the realization this is the wrong place to try to grow bamboo because one thing California has never had enough of and is never gonna, as far as we can tell, is water. And bamboo needs water. But the point is, Bamboo loved nitrogen. So one of the things I started doing 
was growing these heavy wooded bamboos to see what we could make with them. And like people were making structures with this heavy wood bamboo, the, the clumping type, but there was always an ant problem. So what I learned is you could take coffee, which is high in nitrogen. So we'd go to like the local coffee place that's throwing away a hundred pounds of coffee grounds a day. And unfortunately, none of this is organic, by the way, because that coffee is not organic. But to get back to the point, we get these huge trash bags of the coffee grounds. And instead of throwing them in a dump, we'd feed it to the bamboo. And over time, what happened is all the little chemicals and everything that are in the coffee, the components of the coffee would keep the ants off, which would keep the scale off, which would keep the timber good. Further, we realized that there was a joke within the bamboo growing community that you never go inside to pee when you're growing bamboo because what's in your pee, the bamboo loves. And so we did tests with that where like, what if you were just trying to recycle urine? Running bamboos do a wonderful job of it. Um, there's all these things, but the problem is, I think, is that it's not going to produce a lot of business. But nonetheless, it doesn't prevent the individual. But anywhere you want to go before we get to the top? Well, I don't want people to feel intimidated if they have a small place, like a maybe a little bit of a backyard or uh, even worse, they're stuck in an apartment in a city. I was wondering if there's a way we could try and defeat that sense of, oh my God, I couldn't possibly do this sort of thing. Maybe we don't have enough time to do that, but we, maybe we could tee this up for an hour or two on how someone could start doing a small garden, something that they could feed themselves with, even in a not so ideal location, and have it start taking on this everything helping itself kind of notion. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Really, the smaller the place, the more stuff you can get out of that place, because the more you can pay attention to it, essentially, in a per square foot type sense. So yeah, you just have the tiniest little spot in your backyard, just this tiny little bit of greenery. Well, so go out there and dig a hole and pile that topsoil next to the hole. And if you just leave it, all kinds of really awesome stuff will grow because you've made these two different microclimates. You have a like cool, damp spot in your hole and a higher dry spot on your hill. And then you have different angles on that hill. But then you can go and you could plant a couple things. So can you get your hands on some raspberries? You can even go out and look in your local abandoned places in the city. And there's often like wild raspberries or blackberries growing there or these different things. If you could identify them. Just grab a couple of these things and stick them in your backyard and then learn about like the dandelions like we talked about before. And these dandelions are going to grow for free. So here's another thing that's going to grow there. And then you can go and you can get some seeds of some of your favorite things. Maybe you can go to the seed library at the, at the, uh, at the library. I know places around here have those type of things and they're popping up all over the cities. Uh, go in and check out some of the seeds that they have there. And you can go and just sprinkle those around, mix up a whole bunch of different seeds. And once you disturb your lawn by like tilling it or just turning it over with a shovel or another way you can do it is get a bunch of cardboard and just lay the cardboard down on top of all the grass and it will choke out the grass, put it on nice and thick. Can you find some leaf mulch like bags of leaves in the fall or wood chips and spread that on top? So now all of a sudden you've choked out the grass and you've created this whole carbon matter at like bottom of a forest floor type thing and you can just poke little holes through your cardboard and your mulch and you can stick in little plants in there and so it gives them a really good start now it's not competing with the grass so you go and you buy a little raspberry or a little uh, strawberry plant and you stick it in there and then you can use like crow you were saying your pea right i mean 
using human fertilizer is so prime time. Like there's so much potential there, how much nitrogen and other uh, goodness that we excrete that we don't use. So like you say, just going out there and peeing and then you could water that down. So you have this little bucket of pee and water and you go out there and fertilize your plants with it, like your, your raspberries and your little fruit trees and things. And, and then see what happens now, just keep on observing nature and, and it's going to change and you're going to learn things and you're going to start identifying different plants and you get some of the books out there and they start talking about these little plants. And I mean, there's great resources out there too. I'm going to give a shout out, I guess, to a couple of guys. Paul Wheaton is another one over at permies.com. That's P E R M I E S.com is this awesome permaculture forum. It's the biggest one out there and very active and They'll answer all your questions. They got everything on there. It's super high quality stuff there. And he wrote this book and it's called, it sums it up so well, building a better world in your backyard instead of being angry at bad guys, right? So this is it. He's got all these little tips for luxuriant environmentalism, he calls it. Make a huge positive difference from your home. And there's all kinds of awesome stuff in this book. Uh, we're selling it on our website and Paul's got it on at his place. And it's like, it's flying off the shelves, really. It's really an awesome book he came out with just last year, I guess. Or So it's got all kinds of good stuff in there and anyone can start with anything. I mean, if you can get a couple little chickens in your backyard, man, that's so awesome. You had so much good stuff from there. They're really fertilized, but you can just really start small with just some little herbs in a little pot on your windowsill even is, is a big deal. And once you get into container gardening and see what other people are doing, like get inspired from what people are doing, whatever your situation is. If you have a balcony, just go out on YouTube or something and type in like balcony gardens and see what comes up or just type that into your search engine and see what comes up. Or like I say, go to permies.com. Really, if you go to permies.com and type in Whatever your situation is, there's people who have a similar situation who are doing something really cool with it, and you'll get a little inspiration from that, and then just go from there and get your hands dirty. And once you start getting your hands dirty, nature starts responding, and you're going to grow all sorts of really neat things, and the potential is limitless, really, even with no funds at all. Like You don't need money for any of this at the end of the day, so... The potential is limitless. Just got to go out there and start doing some stuff. That's it, really. When I lived in an apartment, when I was still going to school, I was on the ground floor. So I got those big wooden tubs and I grew peppers and things like that that I missed from California that weren't really available here in Rhode Island. So I'll tell a little tale here. And it's true. And it demonstrates what I think is happening. The world is starting to want to do better. And I always make the joke back to the future because they made the joke to poke us in the eye, except what they were using for wasn't so helpful. What I'm trying to use it for is attempting to be helpful, that we used to have all these ways that got thrown by the wayside that were good to go. Now, where I live here in Rhode Island, and this drive drove me bonkers, there would be these big open fields that used to be farmland that hadn't been for a generation or two, and it would be like a meadow. Um, all the way up to your chin sometimes. Sometimes there was ones that would go above your waist or up up to maybe your shoulders, um, depending on what kind of stuff was growing in there. And, and once a, a, a summer or a warm part of the season, they come in and mow these things to the ground, I'd say, and they would do nothing. They just freaking mowed it. Now, like, what are they doing, man? Do they have no idea of all the life they just stymied by doing that? So anyhow, across the street, a little ways away from me, 
there's an old farmhouse that's like a hundred and something years old and some very well-off people moved in and redid it. And they turned this whole field that when I was a child was a butterfly stopover, not just any old butterfly, the monarchs, anyone who wants to see an amazing, how amazing nature is where there is no lie. Go look at how the monarchs migrate. They don't even live the whole migration. They die and have young and then the young take up the migration to complete it. Sometimes two, three, four times. It's amazing. And you can look up down in Mexico, those pine trees where they go. It's an amazing thing. But this field was one of the places where milkweed was growing all over and the monarchs came. So they turned this whole, I don't know, two acres into a lawn. So one day I was out there chatting with them and I told them the tale. I said, when I was young, man, we used to come in this field and all the things that were alive. But when the monarchs came... We'd look at the caterpillars and then all the butterflies would come. I didn't think anything of it. So a year later, I come back and all of a sudden they're, they're plowing up the lawn. And so I'm watching, minding my own business. And all of a sudden, all this stuff starts growing. Lo and behold, it looks like a Monet painting. They, they planted over an acre of all the wildflowers from Southern New England. And people are pulling over to take pictures of this. So I see her out there working in it one day and I said, wow, this is amazing. And everyone stopped looking. She goes, you know, it was because you told us what was here when you were young for the monarchs that we decided to do this. And I thought, wow, that one offhand conversation that I, I didn't think anything of, I thought I was just telling them what used to be. They realigned uh, almost two acres, I would say, uh, to go back to nature. And that's where we got to go, folks. We got to quit with this chemical fertilizer. We got to quit with the sterile farming techniques. We got to quit with all this modern science-y crap that has no concern for nature. Basically, to use the phrase in a beneficial way, we have to go back to the future. Anyhow, Simon, why don't you tell folks where they can find you? Sure. Well, uh, yeah, my wife and I got a little thing going on over at simonsteeps.com, and we're basically just spreading the good word about herbs and how they're here to help. So we have little herbal teas and some other good stuff that my wife makes and we're selling on there, just little things. And um, yeah, that's the main place to check us out, simonsteeps.com. You can get in contact with us through there. And uh, yeah, I'm happy to chat with folks. It's a real passion of mine. And I really uh, feel strongly about getting the word out there. So um, I do my little part and uh, yeah, hopefully this is helping people. All right. Just so folks know, Simon, that's self-evident. Steeps is S-T-E-E-P-S. That's echo, echo, two E's, S-T-E-E-P-S.com. All right. That's going to be it for hour one of episode 276 with Jason Lingren and Simon Steeps, basically covering permaculture. Uh, to refresh, Simon was first with us on episode 191.5, almost exactly a year ago. Join us for hour two at crow777radio.com. That's C-R-R-O-W-777radio.com. That's the only real crow site. There's knockoffs that are up to bad. So join us on the other side. And I'd like to wish you all a happy, healthy, and higher-minded end to this era, which is speeding right up to our front door. There it is, man. Cheers.
face the enemy of knowing. 